descended across the continent. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Welcome to the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training Cold War podcast series. I'm your host, Sumaya Ishrat. You can find the oral histories from today's podcast at ADST.org. Go online to learn more. We are grateful for the continuing member support that makes this podcast possible. Join us to work together preserving the experiences of America's diplomats. The early Cold War was an era defined by division, East against West. Capitalism versus Communism. Justice was typically determined by might makes right. 1955 was perhaps the most important year for countries around the world to figure out on which side of the Iron Curtain they stood. On May 14, 1955, representatives from the Eastern European Communist countries met in Poland's presidential palace to sign the Mutual Defense Treaty, which became known as the Warsaw Pact thus chaining the security faith of the communist bloc together and raising the stakes of the evolving Cold War dynamic. The communist bloc's decision to share a single security blanket came a mere eight days after the newly democratic West Germany's entrance into the U.S.-led North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. As these two major transnational agreements were being created, which would bind the two superpowers in opposing alliance structures, A group of developing nations leaders met a month earlier in an Indonesian city called Bandung. This was the beginning of the non-alignment movement formalized in 1961, or NAM for short. The Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training, Diplomatic Foreign Affairs Oral History Collection Archive, houses the recorded oral histories of many foreign service officers whose work involved American interactions with the non-alignment movement. These are the real perspective of American diplomats who dealt with what would become a major force of the Cold War, or a third road outside of NATO Warsaw Pact confrontation. Here is Thomas Dunlop with his take on the origins of NAM. The beginning of the non-aligned movement you had. You had Nasser and who were the five? Nasser, Nehru, uh, Sukarno, Tito, and there was a fifth one. Anyway, they met down in uh, Indonesia. Nkrumah. They met in Indonesia and pronounced this third way, not communist, not capitalist, but not aligned way, and laid down the five principles of peaceful coexistence. And they then had this series of non-aligned conferences every other year, very elaborate showcases for these uh, chiefs of state. By 1955, decolonization was in full swing with newly formed African and Asian nations from Ghana to Indonesia declaring independence. In fact, The Netherlands still had territorial disputes with Indonesia, the country where NAM began, until eight years after the Bandung Conference. In spite of both sides trying to co-opt developing countries into their respective camps, U.S. diplomats were told to steer clear of direct engagement. Here is Anthony Gerber with his story. Well, that was up in Bandung, and we were sitting in the uh, swamps of uh, Jakarta, shining personality, there was Juan Lai, and uh, it was a thrilling circus which uh, then established the essentially what then became the Third World. 
and continues to be the third world, although it was frayed at the ed edges from the very beginning. But it was a great coup for Sukarno, and uh, we were rather preoccupied and, and worried about it at that time and subsequently. Was the embassy allowed to have any observers in Bandung? Oh, yes. We had our people up, up in, uh, in Bandung. Uh, much of it was really PR relations and the particularly the attractive prima donnas were quite eager to. Well, you had all the Greek there, I believe. Nero. Yeah, that's right. The NAM movement provided many developing world leaders with international legitimacy, regional clout, and a means of playing the two international superpowers off each other. Abdul Nasser of Egypt was particularly skilled at using geography and Egypt's role in NAM to egg on the U.S. and Soviets for military and economic assistance. Here is Ambassador Parker T. Hart with his perspective. Yeah. So, by the time I got out to Egypt, summer, midsummer '55, with Jane and our two little girls, and my job was to be deputy to Cairo. We had a considerable cloud on. Horizon over this question of military aid, because the rumors, excuse me, had already started that NASA would become a member of the non-aligned leadership movement as a result of his visit to Bandung and uh, the great attention that was given to him by such famous people as Nehru and Tito ne and uh, Unu, Burma, and others. Mm -hmm. He was convinced in his own mind that Egypt should play a role as a non-aligned power and a leader of the Arab world and of the African world. And so the rumors also began that he was going to apply this by going to the Soviets now uh, for weapons. And he did, of course. He went. They apparently preferred to have him go to the Czechs, but it was really their handling. Not all countries were as effective in working with the diplomatic tools of non-alignment to secure their political objectives. Many were accused of tilting towards one side or another. India is an example of prominent voice in NAM which did not display the deft diplomacy of Tito or Nasser. Let's hear it from Ambassador Quinton. Uh, the, the Indians were never successful by uh, our, our political uh, system well, nor were they successful in playing the American public very well. It fretted, uh, chafed enormously under the constant bad publicity which they received, uh, focusing on the, the poverty of the Indian masses, uh, the alleged abuses of the uh, Indian Maharaja class, the complaints about the Indo-Soviet relationship and the willingness of the Indians to acquire advanced weapon systems, mainly MiGs and Sukhoi aircraft from the Soviet Union, uh, the constant drumbeat of uh, criticism of non-alignment as a concept uh, of which the Indians were inordinately proud. It's Nehru's vision of the world, which Mrs. Gandhi continued uh, throughout her uh, tenure as prime minister, that India stood above the Cold War, doing so uh, must maintain balanced relationships with the, uh, uh, the two superpowers. 
but we saw this as a, uh, in fact, uh, as a tilt towards the Soviet Union, since we did not accept the concept of parity between the superpowers, but rather uh, that those that were not with us were uh, almost by definition against us, so that although the Indian, uh, Indians tried very hard with a small section of the Congress to uh, build a constituency, uh, they were never successful. Other countries recognized the opportunity to exploit the NAM framework for economic interest in the former colonial dominions of the developing world. Most notably, this was the strategy of China and Zhou Enlai. Here Robert Drexler elaborates. As you said, Africa loomed very important at that time. It was a cockpit of the Cold War. And um, also there was a feeling that there were places in Africa that had wealth, mineral wealth, uranium and so on, uh, oil that was uh, important to us strategically or could be very important mm -hmm. if it fell into communist hands. So there was a great deal of concern about that, especially after Zhou Enlai's trip. But the Chinese also were, uh, became champions or tried to be of the non-aligned, mm -hmm. the non-aligned and the Bandung movement and so on, to which the Africans were very receptive. And it involved, of course, exclusion of the Soviets yeah. as well as the Americans. So it was a kind of third force, and it, it had great resonance in Africa at that time. And the Chinese were very good at cultivating these people. So while I think American officials had an exaggerated view of the potential there for China to sow trouble for us, there was certainly a, a grounds for some concern at, at that time. It was not wholly exaggerated. And uh, the Chinese had a small uh, aid program, but it was sharply focused. And they uh, had excellent language training programs. I mean, it was sort of taken for granted that when the new Chinese ambassador stepped off the plane, no matter where in Africa, he spoke the local mm -hmm. uh, African uh, language. I mean, I'm not talking about French, say, no, no. so Swahili, but the local uh, uh, very well. And um, uh, so, and also the, the Chinese example in Maoism appealed to the Africans in a way that the Soviet communism mm -hmm. did not. Poor country, victims of colonialism in a way, pulling itself mm -hmm. up by its own bootstraps, fighting off imperialism mm -hmm. with its own root yeah. and so on. So there was real resonance. There's a racial thing. That yes. The, uh, well, yes, the racial uh, thing is interesting. The Soviets were white yes. and the Chinese were not white. I, when I when finally got a defector, the only one I told you I can remember from the Chinese embassy in Africa, and I went to talk to him. I said, yeah, you know, what did you feel about the Africans? Uh, uh, meaning racially, he said, mm -hmm. we looked down on them, we despised them racially. But mm -hmm. he said, naturally, of course, we, uh, this was not um, ever made apparent uh, to the Africans, mm -hmm. but we had uh, a strong Chinese racial prejudice against uh -huh. blacks. Yeah. It quickly became apparent that the other countries participating in the non-alignment movement would vary in their adherence to its name and basic mission statement. Some countries would lean towards the United States and other towards the Soviet Union. How would you describe the relations between India and the United States at this particular juncture? I would answer that by jumping ahead to when I was in Indonesia and after having served in India for a couple of years, went to Indonesia, and after having experienced the two of them who are leaders in the non-aligned movement, the way I would describe it from my Indonesian viewpoint is 
that India was not aligned with the Soviet Union mm -hmm. and Indonesia was not aligned with the West. Mm -hmm. One communist leader played an outsized role in NAM and eventually became the favorite of the Americans, Yugoslavia's Josip Broz Tito. Tito had appointed for himself an international role far beyond that which Yugoslavia as a state of whatever number of million people located wherever it was, important though that was in the European context, could normally be expected to play. And I think when historians come to write about Tito, they will, they will kind of marvel at this. Say, how did he do that? How did he do that? How did he become one of the Bandung Five? As Tito moved away from the Russians. This was again, 48, 49. Yeah, that's exactly what happened, because it happened. I even know the names of the guys who yeah. were working on this in the Marshall Plan. We immediately didn't care that they were Marxists. Yeah. They were very much Marxists but they were national Marxists. Yugoslavia was unique by Eastern European communist standards. Tito was a leading resistance figure during World War II and the population saw him as the main liberator of Nazi rule in Yugoslavia. Interestingly, he did this without help from the Soviet Red Army troops. Russian political manipulations in Yugoslavia was minimal when compared with Czechoslovakia, Poland, or East Germany. This independence, of course, led to several disagreements between Tito and Stalin, leading to consistent Yugoslav-Soviet friction. Tito found his international cover with the non-alignment movement. In 1962, Tito hosted the non-aligned conference. It was a big deal. All these high muckety-mucks and some not-so-high muckety-mucks came charging into Belgrade to present themselves to the world as, uh, as part of this new way. And for reasons that I'm not sure, I certainly I don't understand, but anyway, Khrushchev chose to break the, uh, the moratorium on nuclear explosions with the largest ever hydrogen bomb explosion, several times over the size of the largest one we'd ever exploded, and he furthermore did it in the Arctic, an area that previously he had not used for his explosions, which raised all kinds of questions of fallout and pollution. Mm -hmm. And the non-aligned didn't open their mouth about it. Made no criticism whatsoever. And this absolutely infuriated Dean Rusk and John F. Kennedy and the whole Washington establishment. And they cast a shadow over our relations with Yugoslavia all during the years we were there. Tito's status as a communist dictator making consistent decisions, irritating the Soviets meant neither bloc could ever fully control Yugoslavia garnering both frustration and even respect from several American diplomats, Tito's outsized role as an influencer in great power politics while being a leader of a relatively non-strategic country speaks to the leverage the non-alignment movement had on the balance of power during the Cold War. Here is Robert Neitzke. Tito was a dominant figure in the then uh, powerful non-aligned movement. He played that role for all that it was worth, and then some Yugoslav diplomats uh, parlayed their uh, non-aligned uh, influence expertly. They were uh, one of the most, uh, most gifted group of diplomats I had ever encountered until serving in London uh, <laughs> at, uh, at multiplying many times the influence that you might have expected this relatively small country to have on the world stage. I once went into the guy who was dealing with the non-aligned on some 
message or instruction from the department. Something was coming up and we wanted our views registered. And he had this big map, which would occasionally be published also in the paper, The World of Non-Alignment. You know, all the world of non-alignment is red, like the British Empire was. You have all these countries all around mm -hmm. the world in red, including Yugoslavia. But Yugoslavia was this little pimple at the top of this of this, of this map. These mm -hmm. huge countries, you know, all scattered around. And its population being mm -hmm. also tiny. And I couldn't resist the temptation to say to this guy, you know, I've always admired you for folks. How does this little country that's basically Caucasian have all this influence with this huge group of countries, which is basically not Caucasian, and how long do you think it'll last? And he said, until Tito died, it, it may have lasted, but it won't any longer. Mm -hmm. And I saw that as kind of an opening and said, well, look, is there any thought here of perhaps redirect? I'm not telling you your foreign policy is full of shit. I didn't say that. But that wasn't what I tried to imply to him. He may have been suited it. But what about the redirection of the energy and the priorities? You guys spend so much time and money on the non-aligned. You're in this big battle with mm -hmm. Castro. You're having this, which we appreciate. We hope, wish you well. But why? Mm -hmm. And he says, only Tito could have explained that. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, there were some people who, who knew that that kind of thing that mm -hmm. was a reflection of Tito's own personality, this mm -hmm. fixation on the non-aligned, uh, needed adjusting. Mm -hmm. And uh, you won't ever hear of a Yugoslav voice now in any non I don't think the non-aligned has had a... Well, maybe they do have conferences. Uh, I think there is. <laughs> that was a phenomenon of the Cold War again, mm -hmm. perhaps, mm -hmm. history will say. By the 1970s, Tito's age began to impact his role in the non-aligned movement. Other international communists saw an opening in the leadership of NAM. The greatest challenge came from Fidel Castro of Cuba. Here is Thomas Dunlop, followed by Robert Neitzke. Tito always spreading his stuff and very visibly. And uh, we had a lot of arguments with him about very important substantive issues to us in the 50s and 60s, particularly in the 60s. But by the 70s, Tito was in a struggle with Fidel Castro whose own ego was competing for this sort of uh, leadership. And um, not only was it fun to watch, but we had somebody to cheer for. <laughs> it served the purpose of, I believe, in Tito's mind, of creating the illusion, which I hope, I think he, he believed would grow into the reality, of a real nation finding its way in terms of its domestic organization in a non-communist, non-capitalist way, and finding its way on the international stage in a way not allied with either the Soviets or, or the United States. It was an interesting experiment. The non-aligned uh, business, as I mentioned earlier, was actually quite serious because for m much of this time, the non-aligned movement was a thorn in the side of the United States. You, re you may remember Moynihan's famous tirade as UN rep, in which he castig—I wish I had the language I don't—which he castigated these five or six, I believe, and relations were were quite good. But then they would go off and and get in these meetings, and they would always come back to us and say, "Well, we did the best we could." We had to respond to that. You had Egypt was a major player, India was a major player, Cuba, Yugoslavia. We cared. These Collectively, they could deliver the vote on any number of uh, multilateral issues. In those days, we were vying with the Soviets for influence in virtually every third world nation in the world. I mean, it, in retrospect, 
It seems almost curious, but in virtually every African backwater, we were there vying with the Soviets for influence. If not, if we didn't want to come in, at least we didn't want the Soviets to come in. We may not have wanted a, a base or something, but we didn't want the Soviets to have it either. And the Soviets were in their heyday of penetration in these days, so this was relatively important stuff. The Soviets' greatest ally in NAM was Cuba. In 1979, Fidel Castro hosted the Non-Alignment Conference in Havana, and this came with significant influence in the movement for much of the 1980s. Here is Richard Jackson. Well, don't forget this is、uh, just in the aftermath of the 1979、uh, Havana summit, at which、uh, Castro was the chairman of the Non-Aligned Movement. The chairman comes in with the summit. Uh, for a three-year chairmanship, so was still in the chair at that time. This was the high water mark of、uh, Soviet influence in the、uh, non-aligned movement, pushing the so-called natural ally thesis that the natural ally of the non-aligned is the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union could count on a automatic. Litmus vote、uh, from a core of non-aligned countries, say about a dozen. The litmus case being for the Soviet position on Afghanistan, and countries like in those years Ethiopia, Angola, Vietnam, Cuba would always vote for that. The non-alignment movement's influence on global affairs eventually seeped into the United Nations General Assembly's voting records, with the one country, one vote system in the GA. Coupled with the fact that most countries at the time were developing nations, the NAM became a powerful bloc at the UN during the 1970s. Two main factions evolved. First, the more moderate faction, which would vote with the United States and the Soviet Union's interest, fairly and evenly. Such states included Morocco or Singapore. However, there was an anti-American, pro-Soviet radical faction. That would nearly always vote in the Soviets' interest, such as Cuba or Vietnam. During the 1970s and 1980s, how NAM countries voted was a significant pulse on the Cold War balance of power. We by no means wrote off the non-aligned, but the U.S.、Uh, supporters or friendly countries within that movement、uh, were more amorphous,、uh, and. Their vote correspondence with us was nothing like the near hundred percent that the Soviet Union could expect from Vietnam or、uh, Cuba, for example. A country, let's say, like the ASEAN's、uh, Malaysia, Singapore, would probably not correspond to the U.S. votes taking the full spectrum of annual General Assembly votes more than.、Uh, At most, fifty, sixty percent of the time, and likely not that. So it was a different setting, but it was something that we worked very hard at in those Carter years. With Castro's chairmanship of the non-alignment movement, many American diplomats were dismayed at the anti-American sentiment coming from the movement. This was the logical conclusion of U.S. non-interference policy in regards to NAM. Here, William Kiel explains. Did we view this non-aligned movement as essentially an anti-American? Oh yeah, very much so. Very much so. And it and, and of course a lot of the tone was very anti-American. 
Uh, it's not to say that uh, many of the countries there had any great love for the Soviet Union. You know, it was a, supposedly a third path. However, when you had countries like North Korea as a major player and people, uh, folks like uh, Gaddafi as a, as a major leader there, who are on record as being essentially biased against the United States, uh, I mean, it was, it was, it was not being uh, paranoid to think that uh, the U.S. was uh, uh, the number, enemy number one of the non-aligned book. Throughout the 1980s, the non-alignment movement focused on African issues of apartheid and post-colonial struggles. In 1991, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the influence of NAM experienced a precipitous decline. Conferences continued to be held and do so to this day. Yet, understanding the dynamics of the non-alignment movement through the eyes of American diplomats sheds light on the past geopolitical dynamics informing our present. Roots of China's expansive involvement in modern Africa largely have their beginning in Chinese NAM engagement. India remains staunchly non-aligned and military collaborations with the U.S. are usually accompanied by Indian reaffirmations of their non-alignment policy. Indonesia remains silent about growing pressure in the South China Sea and continues to display a wait-and-see attitude towards the quadrilateral strategic dialogue a collaboration of democracies with presence in the Indian and Pacific Oceans. Even though the non-alignment movement is being replaced by regional cooperation agreements, it is a linchpin in understanding the creation of today's geopolitical landscape. Thank you for listening. If you like this presentation and are curious to learn more about diplomats and diplomacy or listen to additional episodes in our Cold War history series, visit our website at adst.org or check us out on Twitter and Facebook. The interviews used in this podcast are drawn from ADST's Foreign Affairs Oral History Collection. Our theme music is by Antonio Vivaldi. Our executive producer is James Fowler. This episode was researched and written by Gray Gardner and Derek Gutierrez. Derek Gutierrez and James Fowler provided our audio engineering and production. My name is Samaya Ishrat. Until next time. <laughs>